Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 94th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Abby Berenger, Student Programs Manager here at the Atlas Society, the leading nonprofit introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in creative ways through our Atlas University seminars, graphic novels, and creative social media content. Today, we are joined by Atlas Society Senior Scholar and renowned philosopher, Dr. Stephen Hicks, and Atlas Society Senior Fellow and Objectivist Writer, Robert Trzynski, who will be discussing two, potentially three if we have time, current events topics. We will save time at the end of each topic to take some audience questions. So throughout the discussion, please put your questions into the chat here on Zoom, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube. Our first topic will be uh, the Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, what should the U.S. roles be? Who are Putin's philosophers? And um, traditional Russian geopolitical situation, ideological support. We're going to discuss it all. So I think I'm handing it over first to you, Stephen. Ah, we're going to start with me. Okay, that's nice. Well, let me then uh, immediately go to my uh, share screen option. I want to run a few pictures by you along with some quotations. I'm going to be focusing less on the geopolitics and the history and so on and uh, sticking to my knitting as a philosopher, probe a little bit into uh, the, the, the philosophical thinking that factors into, into Putin, his own thinking, but then more importantly, the intellectuals whom he, who he is drawing upon. So I want to do one more thing, which is to say from the beginning, go. And there we are. So here's our situation. I am, I am a philosopher, but I also like to look at data once in a while. So uh, first thing I did was I went to look at some standard business ethics indexes and political ethics indexes. So you know, the question is, this is the other side of the world in one respect. And of course, we need to, to, to pay attention. But is there a clear good guy and a bad guy here, Ukraine, Russia, and so on? And we know that they are both uh, mixed mixed nations politically and, and economically. But what does the social science have to have to say about this? So this is from Transparency International. It's a very good index measuring perceptions of corruption politically and economically, particularly when those are, are intertwined. There's about 180 nations that are covered in the index. And uh, this last year, uh, Ukraine was ranked 122nd. So uh, this is in the bottom half. Uh, so it's not a particularly healthy regime in terms of, uh, of, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of corruption and political health. Russia is, uh, is even worse. It uh, comes out 136. So it's getting down closer into the, you know, the bottom quarter, not only the, the bottom, bottom half. Uh, the other thing I had a look at is uh, the economic freedom indexes of the world. So it might be, uh, as we know, some countries are better economically in terms of their principles compared to their politics, others the other way around. And it turns out in this case, uh, uh, not much to uh, <laughs> be happy about in either country, but in terms of 2022 economic freedom index, Russia is ranked 113th, still in the bottom half, but Ukraine is even worse. So uh, my initial reaction then is to say, you know, we've got two countries, you know, they're in the middle of the pack at best, or they're tending toward the bad, both on important political measures and, uh, and important economic measures. So uh, why get too worried about a war on the other side of, of the world? We might have some generalized sympathies. And I do say, I uh, think, though, that that's not the right uh, attitude to take. We do have two mixed economies, and they are similar in some respects, but there are some important differences between these two countries, and those differences should matter to those of us who are 
Western broadly liberal. One is that one of the nations is expansionist and it has been expansionist for quite a while. That's a morally significant difference between two nations. Ukraine has no signs of that it wants to take over Moldova, you know, its, uh, its neighbor to the West, for example. Seems like it wants to be independent, do its own thing. It's Russia that is clearly expansionistic. One is aggressive and has a track record of aggressiveness on the world stage. The other does not have a, a similar uh, track record of, uh, of expansionism. And it's also, I think, important that uh, the size of the nations matter. Uh, if this was to relatively unimportant nations from our North American perspective, uh, then we might uh, you know, have some generalized sympathies and say some things diplomatically, have a few sanctions here and there. But one of these nations is a major world power. If you look at the standard rankings of uh, the most powerful nations in the world, it's always the United States, or it has been this way for a long time. And then it's Russia and China who are sometimes flip-flopping for second and, and third place. It's also a nuclear power. So uh, Russia is in the big leagues. And when we have a big leagues nation, that is expansionist and aggressive, then we have to take uh, pay attention and uh, I think more serious response is called for. Now, lots of subsidiary questions there uh, about uh, Putin, uh, his psychology, his politics, his economic thinking, his philosophy, his religion, and so on. So I do like this propaganda poster. I just threw it in there, but I'm going to focus on just a little slice of this for a, for a few more minutes. And this is to focus on the people who are recognized as philosophical intellectuals in the Russian pantheon. And uh, not only that, but ones whom uh, Putin has cited explicitly in his speeches or people who are in his advisory circle or, or people who also are spokesmen politically who will, will mention. And I'm just going to mention three names uh, uh, that, uh, that do come up. Uh, after this other not so cheap shot posted, I found this one on Twitter and retweeted it the other day. There is standard church state integration in, in Russia, in the modern world to a fairly high degree. Eastern Orthodox is uh, highly mystical, highly collectivist and highly interwoven with the, the political fabric of the nation. So you know, to use Rand's language, we do have a standard Attila and the witch doctor dynamic being played out in, in Russia. That's a serious matter to, uh, to take into account. It's not clear to what extent uh, you know, the religious authorities are using politics to their advantage, to what extent the political authorities are using religion to their advantage, but it is an unholy and uh, illiberal mixture that, that's going on. Whether we think of the people who are senior in the Eastern Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox establishment as philosophers, that's open for grabs, but this is a kind of operationalized philosophy uh, that is, it's part of the working psychology of, of Russian culture. And so we do need to take it seriously. But here is a, a philosopher whom uh, has been cited explicitly by Putin in, in one of his speeches. This is going back to the 1920s. Uh, and this was a time when on the world stage, there was widely seen as a three-way debate between basically liberal democracies in the West, uh, various forms of communism slash Marxism, uh, internationalistic collectivism in the in the East, and then in Central Europe, uh, the, the, the rise of fascisms, national socialisms, and so on. And so Ilyin was positioning himself as a major Russian philosopher of the time. And it's also interesting that Rand would still have been in Russia at this point, uh, saying explicitly that what we need is a, is a third way. 
not to go the Western liberal democracy direction, not to go the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the Bolshevik direction as well. And so here we have the major Russian philosopher whom Putin has cited approvingly in his speeches, uh, uh, identifying an affinity with national socialism and fascism. So in his view, this is from a, a scholar of, uh, of Ilyin, <clears throat> uh, Hitler's National Socialism, Mussolini's fascism, and the Russian white movement were very similar and spiritually close. I did a, uh, uh, an Atlas Intellectual session on, on fascism a couple of weeks ago, and this emphasis on spiritualism in contrast to the materialism of, of Bolshevism and the materialism of the Western liberal democracies as well. This idealistic spiritual fervor uh, as being essential, this is, uh, this is taken seriously. And then we go on to see what are the themes of this spiritualism, and it's a mix of of uh, 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 personal morality and political morality, and it's all highly collectivized. So we need to have a common and united enemy, right? It's us versus the rest of the world and politics should uh, divide itself into us versus them. So none of this cosmopolitanism or the idea that we can have peace among nations and all live and let live and, and ultimately become citizens of the world and so forth. Patriotism, a sense of honor, voluntary sacrificial service, Attraction to dictatorial discipline, spiritual renewal, the revival and rebirth of the country, and the search for a new social justice. So these are all heavily charged philosophical buzzwords taken seriously, and uh, 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 Putin is uh, explicitly hearkening uh, 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 to Ilyin uh, in, in, in his themes. So uh, going back a little bit, uh, Leontiev, a uh, uh, late 1800s uh, thinker, uh, uh, built himself as a conservative, as a monarch, uh, as a monarchist in the in the czarist sense. And again, what we have here is the idea that we need to see Russia as not at all uh, uh, allied to the West or that even in its cultural and philosophical and ideological outreaches, trying to forge bonds and keep the lines of communication open with the West. Instead, Russia is of the East. That's a completely different intellectual, philosophical, moral, and religious culture. And it should see itself as allying itself with the further Eastern countries. And then the targets uh, that, are, that are identified philosophically here uh, as bad as the egalitarianism, by which he means some sort of equality of rights, universality of rights, the utilitarianism, which is in this context, meaning emphasis on what works on material success, on scientific and engineering progress in the world, those utilitarian concerns, and uh, being willing to change things and sometimes change things dramatically getting rid of slavery, getting, uh, getting rid of women as second and third class citizens, extending the franchise, all of these things seen as revolutionary, those are all dangerous, we should be opposed to them. Putin has also cited Leontiev uh, uh, approvingly in his uh, speeches as, as well. And then one more figure whom uh, uh, Putin, to my knowledge, has not cited explicitly. But what is interesting is that if you read Alexander Dugin, and many commentators have, uh, have pointed this out, and then you read 
uh, you know, uh, what Putin is saying in his speeches or what's being released in various sorts of press releases and so forth. In many ways, uh, many times rather, it seems like a week later or a month later after Dugan publishes an article or a book, you find uh, various phrases repeated almost verbatim and certain sentiments uh, repeated. Uh, and so there seems to be a, an, an echoing of this contemporary thinker as well. So. This is uh, going back to uh, 2012, this first one, identifying a very strong conservatism in the Russian sense, family values, the importance of religion and church. Then more broadly, an attack on modernity in all of its uh, manifestations, science, values, philosophy, art, society, uh, everything, understanding of being. That's uh, in for a contemporary philosopher, almost always means you're listening to a Hegelian or a Heideggerian, so uh, that's a philosophically charged tomb, time and space, all is dead with modernity. Now we're familiar with that with uh, some of our own national conservatives and religious conservatives who will attack the enlightenment and, and modernity in the Western context. It's stronger and more virulent in, uh, in Dugan's writing as well. So we are going to end it in a somewhat uh, aggressive form. Uh, there's an explicit mention of Heidegger uh, and uh, Dugan does see himself as a Heideggerian philosopher, so I would recommend that you brush up on, on Heidegger, particularly since Heidegger ended up being uh, declaring himself as a national socialist, as a Nazi, and becoming a kind of court philosopher for Hitler and the national socialists. Dugan wants to position himself in the exact same role with the, pretty much the same ideology in Putin's court as, as well. And then this is a, a quote that's getting uh, thrown around quite recently from his 2014 book uh, that's directly relevant today. You know, we cannot rule out, this is a philosopher now, we need to go to war in a sec. Say we can't rule it out means basically we're in favor of this. Uh, it's going to be a fight. We're going to take uh, uh, Crimea back and Ukraine uh, as, as well. Now, just one uh, closing question here, and then I'll turn things over, over to, uh, to Rob. Thank you for your patience. I know you've got uh, a lot to say as well. It's one thing uh, uh, then to say uh, that uh, Putin says all of these things, and it is possible that he is just throwing this out as a kind of uh, red meat for the, the masses of Russians uh, to give an ide ideological overlay and to, to cite the, the hallowed names in, in Russian philosophical history. Uh, and of course, the other possibility is that he actually believes these things and this forms his, uh, his ideological uh, undergame. In one case, you might say he's just kind of Machiavellian. He just says what he wants to, and he's just an authoritarian, power-lusting kind of guy. Uh, and, and the ideology is just an overlay. In that case, I would say uh, uh, we still need to do a lot of philosophical work because then it's a question, why is it that uh, 100 million or more Russians, this is the kind of red meat that they want to hear. Uh, uh, and, and if it's the case that he actually believes this sort of stuff, then we have philosophical work among the elites. Why is it that these are the buttons that are being pushed among the elites such that Vladimir Putin, the guy who ascended to the, the top in Russia, is a true believer in these things? And either way, we've got our philosophical work cut out for us. So that's it from me on this. All right, Rob, uh, go ahead if uh, you have any um, response. Okay, yeah, so I got, I got a lot to say. I, by the way, great stuff because I really was very interested in going back to the philosophical influences. I think that's that's really important. And yeah, I think you know the, there's a big question of does Vladimir Putin uh, um, actually believe any of this? As just as there's a question, does Attila believe anything the witch doctor says? 
the point is not whether he, I actually talked to somebody who was, uh, uh, his wife was, uh, her parents were diplomats in Russia in the 90s. And they, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin was a family friend and he was considered a reformer at the time. This is in the late 90s. So he's considered, you know, a safe, harmless guy, a reformer. And then, of course, went off in this other direction. So it's clear that this is not necessarily that he was a true believer. But that's the whole thing about the Attila and the witch doctor relationship is that Attila wants power. And he goes to the witch doctor to say, tell me what incantations I have to repeat in order to get power. And that's the thing is that they need the, the point is that they need each other. If you want total power, you need somebody who's going to give you an ideology that will justify that power. And these nationalists, these uh, conservatives, Russian conservatives that Putin goes to are the ones that he believes will rally the Russian soul behind that uh, the goal of him having absolute power. So it is relevant. I mean, even if he doesn't believe it, the fact that he feels the need to pretend to believe it. And then, of course, I think there's also the fact that dictators have this tendency to believe their own propaganda after a while. Uh, now, a couple of things I want to add. I, I think that's definitely the case, you know, that it, with with I mean, he he this whole debacle of his invasion of Ukraine is clear that he you know, he's been saying Ukraine's an artificial nation. It doesn't really exist. Nobody's nobody's going to fight for it. And he clearly believed that was the case because he went in thinking he was going to knock the whole place over in a day and obviously was out of touch with the actual reality of events. But there's that one thing I want to bring out there, as you mentioned, uh, Patriarch Kirill. So Kirill is the, the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, and they have had a very close relationship for a long time. And there's definitely this sort of uh, church-state thing that's going on there, and, and they have to actually a name for it. There's an old doctrine called the Third Rome. And this is the idea. Moscow is the Third Rome. Now, the First Rome was Rome. It was the Roman Empire, which was the original center of Christianity. And then the second Rome was the Byzantine Empire, which was the center of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, and where you had this, this uh, it's a term sometimes called Caesaropapism, where the, 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 um, the Caesar or the, you know, the, the, the king was also the high priest, also in charge of the religion, where there was this merger of church and state. And then the, under, under this doctrine, they view Moscow as the third Rome. It's going to be the, the third center of Christianity where the state and church are fused together. And there's a long history of, um, especially in recent years, of more and more laws being passed, for example, persecuting or discriminating against uh, religions other than the Eastern Orthodox Church. So, you know, one of the ironies that's going on right now is there are a lot of conservatives in America, some of these nationalist conservatives in America, who are very sympathetic to Putin because they have that same goal, that church and state should be more closer together, that the government should be, uh, should be promoting religion. But the thing is that at the same time, uh, evangelical Christians are discriminated against and persecuted. They're viewed as a cult in Russia because they're outside of the Orthodox Church. So there's definitely this whole church and state thing going on. Another long piece of the history here. So um, there's been a part of the debate that's come out of here is, and part of the reason Putin says uh, this isn't, you know, uh, uh, Ukraine isn't really a separate country, is the origins, the historical origins of Russia are in uh, uh, Ukraine. They're, they're the, it was the Kievan Rus uh, who were the original sort of uh, the group of Russians that then expanded out eastward. And, and, and there's a lot of discussion about what the origins are, but the, the history seems to be that they were Vikings who came down the rivers from uh, the Baltic Sea, came down the rivers into Russia, making a trade route down to Constantinople in the Middle Ages. 
And they, so they, these were Vikings who established the first settlements among the Kievan Rus, and then that, set, that spread out. But the interesting part of this history, and I recommend a book on this I recommend, is called Property and Freedom by Richard Pipes. It's a fascinating sort of historical overview of the relationship between property rights and freedom. And he says what happened is the, this original Viking settlement of Russia was eventually conquered by the Mongols. The Mongols came through and you know, the Golden Horde came through and they conquered all of Ukraine and they conquered Russia, all the other Russian settlements. And they brought the Mongolian political system to replace the Viking system. So, you, uh, and, and the Mongolian political system was called, a, I think it's called a patrimonial system. And it's the idea that the, the, the leader, the king owns all the land and all the people in the land that he rules. He is the owner of everything. Everything is his property. And it's a very centralized, dictatorial, uh, uh, it's, it's the, 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 a system, the traditional system that is the exact opposite of any glimmer of individual rights. And this is something that has deeply shaped Russian culture and Russian political institutions. And that's part of what's going on here is that, you know, there's this, you know, after throwing off Soviet, after throwing off the czars, they went to the red czar, uh, uh, Stalin and the Soviet rulers. And then after throwing off the Soviets, they go to a new sort of fascist leader, dictator, in terms of Vladimir Putin. There's this deep need in Russian history and deeply embedded in Russian culture, this love of and need for a strong man to rule everyone. And it has this deep historical roots. Now that brings us to the current crisis with Ukraine. And you mentioned that corruption indexes and all of that. And yes, Ukraine and Russia are very similar in those respects, in part because Ukraine has been under Russian control for a long time. I mean, even after its nominal independence in 1991, it had a lot of you know, it, leaders who were sort of Russian style strongmen, uh, had a leader, Viktor Yanukovych, who was who was basically a Putin crony who was backed by Putin. And the real issue that's driving this is that what set this all off, um, especially in 2014, when they had a sort of a street protest and a rebellion that, that kicked out Viktor Yanukovych, it was over the, the fact that the Ukrainians wanted to join the European Union. And Yanukovych was trying to push them towards a treaty that would basically put them in a union with, with Putin and Moscow. And that's the real issue is the Ukrainians, they, it may, they may have a, they have a society that has lots of problems, lots of corruption. But the question, but what they're basically saying is, is they've made a decision that they want to become more like the liberal societies of Europe. They want to become part of the European Union. They want to make the reforms and get rid of the corruption. Um, Volodymyr Zelensky, the, the, the president of, of uh, Ukraine, was actually, it's a funny story because he was a comedian and an actor. He had, he produced and created a TV show in which he played an ordinary guy who gets elected president of Ukraine. And Ukrainians loved his role so much that they decided we should make this guy actual president of Ukraine. Um, and, but the whole center of that show, that how this guy gets, elevates himself, is he gives this rant against corruption, official corruption, that gets picked up and goes viral on the internet. And that's how he becomes president. And that's sort of, you know, life is imitating art, that the whole point of what they're doing and the reason they don't want to be part of Russia or part of Russia's sphere of influence is that the Ukrainians are making this decision that we want to be a country like the countries of Western Europe. We want to be part of the European Union. We want that kind of government where you have political freedom and you have the ability to vote and you have you know, uh, a less corrupt, you have the rule of law. We don't want to be 
basically serfs of Vladimir Putin, which is the Putinist system. So I think that's the real thing. And that's, that's what kicked this all off is their decision that we want to be on the European model and not on the Putinist model. And that was what Putin really couldn't accept that you have. And it's a real danger to him, really, because I know that Kiev for years has been a center of Russian dissidence, that if you're somebody who opposes the Putin regime, you can go to Kiev and you can still speak Russian and you can have all this, in, you know, and it's, it's so closely tied geographically and historically and culturally to Russia that it's become sort of a haven for dissidents who can operate independently from the Putin regime and outside his control. And that's one of the reasons he's trying to shut it down. So I think what's really going on here is you have, at the deepest level, is you have two different opposed models of government, a sort of a Western, a European, a liberal, and, and liberal in the philosopher's sense, a, a pro-freedom model of government versus a sort of Putinist, uh, Mongolian, uh, strongman, you know, Zara, neo-Zarist uh, model of government. And that's really what the two things that are being contested in Ukraine in this war. Uh, well, I think you guys have both just said more about the you know real geopolitical situation, the philosophies, uh, and the history than I've heard um, in the last three days on the news. So um, Kamala Harris didn't enlighten you. <laughs> no, on that note, unless you have a, a quick response here, Stephen, I wanted to jump into some questions. Uh, well, I have lots of questions myself uh, to put to Rob, but let's go to the uh, the other questions and I'll smuggle mine in when I can. All right. Well, our first question, and I think this kind of touches on, on what we just mentioned um, about the news, and I think a lot of people are asking themselves this. Uh, Jeremy Ryder wants to know, um, what do you both make about the difficulty in knowing what news, and he puts that in quotes, quote unquote, is true coming out of this conflict? Yeah. Well, that, that's the perennial problem these days is that there's a lot of propaganda, a lot of propaganda out there. I mean, I think actually a lot of the mainstream sources that I follow, I mean, there, there's been a, a, a tendency in recent years to say, oh, the mainstream media is terrible. But the actual international reporting of The New York Times, The Washington Post is generally pretty good. Um, I've been following some stuff from a couple of uh, Kiev journal journalists in Kiev that I didn't start following them when part of the problem is if you start following them when the conflict is in the news, it's very confusing. These are people I've been following since, you know, 2004. Uh, uh, one of the ones I recommend is the Kiev Independent, which has uh, it's a relatively new one, but it involves people who've been commenting this for a long time. Uh, I also have some friends with the Cosmopolitan Globalist, which is uh, Claire Berlinski has uh, run uh, run and, and Vivek uh, uh, um Yelkar, Velkar, I think his name, uh, run this. And it's it's an attempt to try to have this network of foreign journalists who they bring the news back to the Americans audience because, you know, we tend not to pay any attention to it until there's a war. Uh, so, you know, it's always a problem to find out who you can trust. In, and there's always in the, in the case of a war, there's always the fact that there's, you know, they call it the fog of war. You'll hear reports about this happened or that happened. And it turns out it wasn't true because nobody really knows what's going on. Um, but I'd say, you know, it's, there are some good mainstream sources. New York Times and, and Washington Post have, have good coverage. And there's some good uh, uh, Ukrainian sources as well. Ones that, you know, if you're following them from before, you know that they, they have good sources. Um, and obviously don't listen to anything on RT because that's, that's a literal state propaganda organization from uh, uh, run, by, uh, run by the Russians to promote their side of things. Stephen, do you have any thoughts on that? 
No, that uh, I agree. It's the standard problem. I would say is uh, just yeah, read widely, give yourself some time. Uh, part of the problem is that we're trying to absorb a thousand new pieces of information and our brains can only handle a certain amount of uh, information digestion per hour. So just be patient with the process and use the usual vetting and comparing. Very good advice. Um, Scott on YouTube wants to know, and you, you touched on this a little bit, Robert, um, do you, how big of a role do you think the third Rome um, had is that that idea has in the, in the current aggression that we're seeing? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's one of the things that's behind this. It's one of the propaganda things that 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 Putin uses to create this sense of of a, a, the the manifest destiny of a of a Russian empire. Uh, uh, and uh, now, the the thing about it, the ironic thing about it, actually, is that uh, from people I've seen, you know, covering Russia, they say that very few Russians are actually all that religious. You know, it it is a uh, and of course, the, the country is horribly corrupt. And so, you know, Christian, you know, the, the idea that it's a bastion of some elevated Christian morality is also uh, very highly implausible. But, um, you know, it it also has to do with the fact that I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, uh, Sheikh Kateri, a young Iranian-American. Uh, he actually escaped from Iran during the Green Revolution. And he talked about how there are certain countries in the world that tend to view themselves as naturally uh, being imperial, of naturally being entitled to an empire. And he says he talks to, uh, you know, friends back in, in, in Iran and they say, well, yeah, we, we have to get rid of the mullahs. But after that, we should definitely have an empire <laughs> that it's just like part of the national identity. And I think that's that's part of Russia's problem is they have this national identity that, yes, we should we are entitled to be at the center of an empire. And it's one of these things that, you know, goes back hundreds of years and is part of the national psyche. And part of the danger we have right now is sort of the the part of the reason that Russia, there's so much anger and so much sort of uh, audience for an aggressive policy in, in Russia is that, that that mismatch between the idea that we are entitled to an empire, but in reality, they're this country with this little tiny economy with a which, as we're seeing now, an old, broken-down military that's highly ineffective and very have very little respect on the world stage. So it's the mismatch between. You know, it's like the guy who thinks he ought to rule the world, but he's living in his mom's basement. It's that mismatch that, that creates, creates the anger mm -hmm. um, uh, that, that fuels a lot of this. So I think that, that the third Rome part is all just part of that mosaic of this mismatch between the grand imperial world domination ambitions and the actual reality of, of the Russian economy and military and its position in the world. Yeah, I'll jump in I, the, with one of my questions. Um, here we're trying to read the national psyche of Russia and then the psyche of Putin in particular. Uh, what if we tried to de-emphasize the religion? I, I don't think this is the right road to go, but there's an argument here that it's really ethnicity that is more important than the religion. You might fold the religion into the ethnicity, but uh, that it really does get under Putin's skin that Ukraine wants to go in a different direction. And we think of the Ukrainians as part of us. But at the same time, we're not especially worried that uh, Putin is going to take over Estonia or Lithuania, or they're going to go after the Finns again, or Kazakhstan and reabsorb it into the Russian empire. And the difference there is that those are kind of different peoples if you take the collectivist nationalistic perspective, but Ukraine is different. And the only difference then is this ethnicity. So 
What do you think about the argument of elevating the ethnicity issues over the religious ideological issues? Yeah, so I, th I think well, I think it's all part of a mosaic. We're sort of in a bad right. cultural neighborhood, so to speak, where like multiple pathologies are interacting. So, you know, even I think it is, is, is especially intense with Ukraine because of that ethnic connection that they're viewed as that they're not really a separate people. They're part of us. Although, on the other hand, I'm going to say the Finns are worried. Uh, and I, I know that the Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, though they're very worried because they think Putin still thinks yeah, and these the are naturally our possessions. Worried. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, I also wouldn't discount the religious element because it adds to it adds a whole other element on top of this. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's actually been a story behind this where a few years back, I can't remember exactly how long ago, but the the patriarch of so there's there's the patriarch of Constantinople is one of the, you know, the, the, the Eastern Orthodox religion doesn't have one single center like the Pope. It has these patriarchs, but the main patriarchs are, uh, there's one in Constantinople and there's one in, in Moscow. And the one in Constantinople gave his permission and his blessing essentially to form a separate patriarch for Ukraine. Then it was like officially separating the Ukrainian Orthodox Church from the Russian Orthodox Church. And that's part of this whole conflict is that there's that religious element of saying, the Ukrainians saying, we are not going to be part of the Russian Orthodox Church. We're not going to be under the Russian, the patriarch in Moscow. We're going to be independent of him. So again, that religious element there is not incidental to it. It's, it's a crucial, but you know, it's, it's, it's not that it's one thing that's at the center of everything. It's that this, it's this constellation yeah, of factors yeah. all working together, the ideological, um, I mean, like, take a look at the, the ideological versus the ethnic, this whole thing of Putin having the idea that we have an Eastern system as opposed to a Western system, right? So he has a fascist, essentially a fascist ideology. But what part of what makes him embrace that is this perception that this fascist ideology is distinctively Eastern. And I think, it's, you know, it's distinctively Eastern because basically it's compatible with the, the Mongolian model that, you know, Russia has had since, since the Golden Horde invaded. Um, and, and so he views that as this is the Eastern model as opposed to the Western model. And there's all sorts of levels of irony, like the fact that, you know, a lot of these fascist ideas were basically invented in, in Italy and, and Germany and, and what are now liberal Western countries. Um, but, you know, so you see how the ethnicity, the sense of East versus West ties into the ideology of liberal versus illiberal. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it's, this, it's this confluence, as, as a lot of history is, it's this confluence of a bunch of different factors coming together and coming together in a very intense form in Russia as opposed to other countries. I'd like to make a suggestion uh, with Abby's indulgence, looking at the time, that uh, we're definitely not going to get to three issues that maybe uh, since this is such a rich topic, we just carry on with the remaining 10 minutes and talk about Russia, Ukraine. I've got more uh, observations and questions here. We'll save the Canadian uh, trucker protests for for another time. What do you guys think? Well, Rob, I, I think okay. I with think that, that's fine. It's it, the Canadian thing has been sort of kicked from the news. Um, yeah. By yeah. by Ukraine, I, I have some things. I had some. Oh, I will just put a pitch. I we had a little discussion about it in a clubhouse yesterday, and I think it's recorded somewhere where I went over not so much about the Canadian protests, but about the ethics of protests itself. Right. About yeah, and that's, know, a, what methods, that's a rich topic. We I think we should yeah. come back to that one. I, yeah, I've got some yeah. things to say about that one as well. Uh, are there questions uh, coming in, Abby? Yeah, we do have questions coming in. We can go to okay. some more questions if you guys want to stay on this topic or if you have a few comments. Yeah, let's, stay, let's stay with the with the war and I'll save also some of my other questions and observations for later. Okay, well, let me go to a few more questions then. Um, so we talked about 
Okay. So Maria Mendoza on Facebook wants to know if the situation were reversed, would the United States act aggressively if Russia were trying to per se get Mexico to join join a quote unquote Warsaw Pact? I've heard people pitch various versions of the same question. Um, what do you guys think? Right. Uh, you know, that ties in. Let me just say one preamble and I'll turn it over to Rob because he's more of a po- politics commentator guy than I am. Uh, but yes, I like this idea of uh, you know, trying to get outside of Putin's brain and what's going on in Russia to the question of why it should matter to us on the other side of the world. And then the question about alliances and Mexico and Cuba and so on becomes relevant there as well. So uh, yeah, I just want to stick a pin in the question of whatever's going on there and our best understanding, why should this war matter to us in North America or in the rest of the the world? So, uh, but you take up the Mexico thing, Rob. Okay, so uh, the question would be, you know, if if Mexico wanted to have a free society and we were a dictatorship, you know, the the, the problem is with taking this as if, you know, you could you could say, well, what if Mexico were to try to join some other uh, some other uh, countries uh, uh, join with some other country and, and they're on our border? You can't take that out of the context of are we a free society or not? Right. So, you know, there's this. Uh, a video that goes along, it's a, a, I can't remember their names. It's a uh, uh, Mitchell and Webb, I think is their name, a group of British comedians. And they did this skit with these Russian soldier, Russian, oh, no, sorry, Nazi troops you know, in World War II. And the one turns to the other and said, Hans, I've been thinking, are we the baddies? You know, where they had this moment where they realized you know, there's skulls on our uniforms. We must be the bad guys. Uh, and and you know, there's sort of that moment where you have to, the first question you have to ask is, are we the baddies? You know, are we the good guys or the bad guys? So, you know, uh, if 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 China were forming an alliance with Mexico, the problem wouldn't be that a foreign country is forming an alliance with Mexico. The problem would be that it's a dictatorship forming an alliance in order to spread dictatorship uh, on the border of a free country. Whereas in this case, the situation is completely reversed. This is a free country, or this is you know this is a uh, a mixed country, but a relatively free country, Ukraine. Uh, one that actually elect, can elect its rulers and has certain has a large degree of freedom of speech, that's wanting to join with other free countries in order to protect its independence, and then it you know it's they're trying to stay out of being absorbed by a dictatorship. So you know you can't take that moral that fundamental issue. You know in politics the most fundamental issue is are you a free nation or not? You know it, the freedom is the fundamental. So you can't talk about these things in, in, you know, in this sort of abstract way without addressing that fundamental issue. No, I would say that's, that's exactly right. Ultimately, you do have to make the moral judgment. What is good politics and what is bad politics and the spread of bad politics is something you have to fight. And if you are uh, the spreader of the bad politics, then, uh, then, then you're out of the, you're out of the moral game. Uh, so I'll just leave it at that. On that. Do you have a question? Because I'd like to talk about what is what America's role in this conflict. Yes, be. right. So uh, yes, so my my thinking on this is to, to say, yeah, it's a, it's a war on the other side of the world. There is a cost risk benefit question. Uh, if Russia were to take over Ukraine successfully, would it be sated with that? Uh, are there going to be further dominoes and so on? So I think there is a natural and important question about why. Uh, Americans or uh, Canadian Americans like like me should worry about this war on the other side of the world. And I think uh, part of the answer is a general answer is to say that since the end of World War II, 
We've done a pretty good job of establishing the principle that the major powers are going to abide by certain norms. Aggressive wars are going to be a thing of the past. And uh, that is clearly being violated in this case, and it's being violated by a major power. And so uh, uh, the, the establishing of an international order that's worked pretty well for almost 70 years is at risk, and we're going uh, possibly back to an old style of politics. And so it's not just a local war, it's a local war that has international implications. At the same time, there is a politics and political theory question for advocates of you know, constitutional republics. We say, uh, you know, suppose that uh, Abby, you are the president of the United States. And they would say, well, what is your job as the president of the United States? And the people of our ideological persuasion say that your job is to protect the rights of American citizens. And they say, well, okay, that's fine. But in what way are the rights of American citizens being violated when Russia tries to take over Ukraine? And is it then inappropriate for you as the president of the United States to use your political power and economic power and devote resources to something that's not obviously a threat to citizens of the United States. And you say, well, maybe then they're going to also take over Finland and then maybe they would also take over you know, the Baltic states and so on, but it's really gonna be a long, long time before they get across the Atlantic. And so the threat is, uh, is generational and so it would be inappropriate. So I think that's an interesting argument to, uh, to, 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 take, uh, to take up. So then we might say, suppose you're not the president of the United States, suppose you're the president of Argentina you know, what should your role be? And you better have some issues about Argentina, but it's still a basically decent country in a lot of respects. And you would say your job as president of Argentina is to protect the rights of Argentinian citizens. And the war seems even farther away. And it's going to take a long time for Putin and his forces to make its way all the way down to the southern cone of, of South America. So what is the rationale for, for getting involved? And I do want to say there's a couple of things. One is this issue of uh, uh, your role in uh, contributing to the international order that is going to be a peaceful uh, uh, international order. And the other though, I think is unique to the United States and that's its stature as a great power. And we start using you know, uh, 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 you know, world policeman types of language and I'm not very comfortable with that language, but there is something special about the role of the United States given its stature in contemporary times. And that I think we need to tease out a little bit more. What is the United States is at least first among equals uh, among the leading liberal, democratic, peaceful-oriented nations in this particular context. Right. So, so one of the things I wanted to add here is that the the people who have been taking the most leadership on this, much to my shock, the people who have been taking the most leadership on this are the are the Europeans. I mean, I actually I had to you know actually learn how to spell Ursula von der Leyen, which is, she's the your uh, commissioner of the European Union. Who has been you know central to the leadership of this and, and the European Union showing bold and decisive leadership is not something I think the world was prepared for. Um, and the Germans have you know tripled their defense budget and the Swedes have broken their neutrality and the Finns are talking about joining NATO, which is something they've been am ambiguous and ambivalent about for a very, very long time. So the thing is that if you look at this from a European perspective, this is not something out there on the periphery. This is knocking on the door. Right. So they're looking at this and saying, wait a minute, we had this, you know, after since World War II and especially after the fall of the Berlin Wall, they had this whole project to say, let's let's have Europe be at peace. Let's not have Europe have any more wars. 
you know, because we had two giant devastating ones in the 20th century. They almost had a third in the 20th century. And they basically said, let's not have this anymore. And what they're seeing now with Russia breaking, as you called it, well, the, the term, term usually used for it is the rules-based international order. By Russia then saying, we're just going to invade because we feel like it and we don't care about the rules, we don't care about the, uh, the precedents, that opens the whole Pandora's box of we are now going to have people you know, having contests of force to see who rules territory in Europe. And that was exactly what Europe was trying to get rid of after the great devastation of World War II. So for them, this is not something happening, you know, 5,000 miles away. This is something happening at, you know, less than 1,000 miles away. It's something happening in their backyard. Also, um, the interests of the European countries have been more closely involved. Like uh, uh, one of the, the United Kingdom has been extremely active in supporting the Ukrainians. And one of the reasons is because over the last 10 years or so, uh, uh, Putin has carried out a whole series of assassinations in the United Kingdom, assassinations of uh, Russian dissidents who were there, but there were also some just ordinary bystanders, British citizens who were killed by, by nerve agents uh, and, and, and these other poisons. So this idea that, that Putin seems to think that he can not only extend his tyranny to Ukraine by controlling and occupying it, but he can extend it to any European country by sending assassins and engaging in acts of violence to, to suppress dissidents in, in those countries. Or another case that happened uh, in the last year is there was a, uh, it was a Ryanair flight. Ryanair is a sort of a discount airline in Europe that's run out of, out of Ireland. And the flight was going from Athens to Estonia, I think. Uh, maybe either Latvia or Estonia. It, but it was forced down over Belarusian airspace so that the Belarusian police can come on and grab a Belarusian dissident who was on the plane and imprison him and torture him, right? So this is a case we have is you three, Europe, three Western European free nations, Ireland, Greece, and, and you know one of the Baltic states that are involved. And if they can't protect somebody who is under their protection, if that person could just be snatched off an airplane, again, the, the floodgates of chaos and tyranny are opening <laughs> for, for the Europeans. And that's why they are so united in this unprecedented, somebody said, I don't think the Europeans have ever been since this, has, have ever been this united ever in their entire history. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you think of all the different wars and, and divisions in Europe throughout its history, I don't think the Europeans have ever been this united in all their history because they all see that as an immediate danger to you know what's going to happen to the Baltic states, what's going to happen to Poland, and if it happens there, what happens in Germany, and what happens in the UK, they all see it have as having an immediate effect on them. Mm -hmm. Now, from the American perspective, I want to say two things on that. One is that whenever there's a battle between freedom and dictatorship, if you as a political leader don't know where you stand, or if you don't care, or if you're indifferent, that says a lot of bad things about your political leadership, right? So I hear, when I hear Tucker Carlson saying, why should I care? What I hear is Tucker Carlson saying, I don't care about the difference between freedom and dictatorship. And he's been demonstrating that for a long time on his show. Um, so, you know, you can't be indifferent. You at least, at the very least, you have to wish the Ukrainians well in their attempt to create a more liberal society and not be absorbed into a dictatorship. Uh, and the plan, by the way, the plan that's come out is it was very clear that having seized Ukraine, Putin was going to uh, have this declaration that uh, uh, Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine were all going to be united together, but forcibly into this greater Russian uh, empire. Uh, 
so politically united. So, you know, it's very much the idea that they were going to be made part of, into part of a dictatorship. So you at the very least have to wish the Ukrainians well and wanting to not be absorbed into a dictatorship. Now, the question then, of course, is what do you do? And the more remote you are, the less you are actually required to do in terms of support. And when it comes to America, we have, aside from the distance doesn't matter so much because we are very closely related to the Europeans. There are indispensable allies. We benefit so much from the international peace and order and trade that was made possible by having this rules-based international order. We have a lot of interest in this. And I think we've, we've, we forget that because we've enjoyed that benefits of that for so long that we forget what it was, what the world would be like if it were all just, um, if it were all might makes right, which is really what's going on here. If, if the international order was simply might makes right, we would be in a much worse world. And that would be bad for us because all of our trade relationships, all of our, you know, we need a larger military to maintain our own defense. Everything would go, would get much, much worse if we didn't have that relatively peaceful international order we've had for the last 70, 30 to 70 years, uh, especially in the last 30 years. But there's one other issue, which is that there is a limitation to what the United States can do because we have the old, we're sort of going back to the old Cold War rules, right? Because we're a nuclear, we're a major nuclear power. Uh, Russia is, <laughs> Russia is not a major conventional power anymore. I think they demonstrated that, you know, they, their, their invasion has shown they're a paper tiger in conventional forms of uh, forces, but they are a nuclear power. And there's that, you know, when two nuclear powers are facing up against each other, you're going back to the old Cold War rules. And there's been a lot of jokes going around about how, you know, us Gen Xers, have to take the millennials and the Zoomers under our wing and say, okay, this is what it was like <laughs> to, to live in a world where you had a permanent state of standoff between nuclear powers. And we lived under this constant threat of, of uh, a possibility of nuclear war. No. So we go back to the old Cold War rules, which is we can supply weapons to the Ukrainians and smuggle them across the border. But there have been some people saying, oh, we should create a no-fly zone over Ukraine. We should you know, tell the Russians, you can't fly your military jets. But the problem is you, you do that, what do you have to do? You have to have an American jet shooting down a Russian jet. And then suddenly you have a, a hot war, a shooting war happening directly between two nuclear powers. That is, you know, the rules say you can't do that. So we can provide lots of indirect support um, and especially helping the Europeans support the, um, I think we've got some uh, AWAC planes uh, doing circles in Southern Poland providing uh, radar and, and intelligence monitoring and providing lots of information to the Ukrainians. We can provide huge amounts of indirect support, but we can't get directly involved. And those are just, you know, it's the old Cold War rules. And sometimes, sometimes you know, people ask, well, how can we supply them weapons, but we can't actually come in and pull the triggers ourselves? Well, it might not make that sense, that much sense, but, but them's the rules. Those like the agreed upon ground rules hammered out over 40 years during the Cold War. And that sort of gives the limits of what, of what we can do. Also from the American perspective, uh, China is watching and uh, China's another major world power. And so the question about what the rules of the game are going to be in the international order uh, has a, an additional significance. You know, it is interesting that the, the world is united against Russia and in favor of Ukraine uh, in a way that it was not united when uh, uh, China was flexing its muscles with respect to Hong Kong just, uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, but uh, maintaining the right kind of rules in place, and, and, and rules might be too strong, at least the uh, practices 
in place on the international order. So if Russia can successfully set a precedent here, then China will feel uh, emboldened to act in, in certain ways. And then you know, what happens with uh, Taiwan, for example, right. and, and other peripheral states. So the stakes I, I think, are I think, actually, quite I think, high. I think the Ukrainians may already have saved Taiwan because yeah. uh, you know by showing that, look, just because you're the larger power with this big army doesn't mean you can walk in and take over in a day. It, it's going to be a lot more difficult than you think. And it probably changed a few calculations uh, among the leadership and, and, and also seeing the international response change some probably changed some calculations in Beijing because they're looking at it and saying, well, wait a minute, you know, if we invade, you know, Putin's calculation was I'll invade. They won't really fight back. We'll take it over within a day or so. We'll, we'll put on our puppet government. We'll declare this union and we'll, you know, we'll be in control. The world will get angry at us and they'll impose some sanctions, but it'll be temporary. It'll be weak. It'll be ineffectual. It'll be temporary and they'll get over it. And then we will have won. And he was wrong on every single one of those calculations. Well, I think Beijing, you know, the government in China has probably been making a lot of the same calculations about what would happen if they took Taiwan. And so now they're, they're, they're redoing all those calculations saying, wait a minute, you know, we could see our economy collapse by trade being cut off. We could see extended resistance. We could see our army not being anywhere near us. You know, despite all the money we put into building it up, you know, Putin put a lot of money to build up his army. It wasn't nearly as effective as he thought. So they're they're redoing all their calculations in a way that I think is going to be very beneficial for us because it's going to mean a less aggressive China. I did also want to put in a plug for the capitalist peace thesis, as it's called in uh, in scholarly circles. And uh, what's been happening as a resp uh, uh, in response to the Russia-Ukraine war is further support of the capitalist peace thesis. Of course, on the left, it's a standard dogma that capitalism is imperialistic and warlike and capitalists are always frothing at the mouth, uh, wanting uh, the next war to happen. But uh, once again, when war happens, it's the capitalists who are using their tools to go after the aggressors and isolate the aggressors and to boycott the aggressors and to cut off their access uh, to uh, various sorts of financial routing things and so forth. But in the interests of peace. And the vast majority of capitalist institutions are on the side of maintaining the peace, not urging on the war. And, and you know, there's a, the last, uh, basically since World War II, there's been something called the long peace, uh, where the number of major wars, the number of deaths from wars has been going down. And it went down specifically even more in 1991 after the breakup of the Soviet Union, that once the commun once communism was removed from the scene, the number of wars went way down. The number of deaths from wars went way down, and I think that ought to have buried the whole capitalist, you know, the the, the whole capitalist imperialism as the cause of that whole theory of capitalist imperialism as the cause of war. That's all been buried completely by the history of the last seventy or eighty years. Yeah, and then on the kind of cost benefit calculations, uh, you know, again a standard doctrine on the left that it's all about short term profits. Uh, what the reaction here shows is that uh, most capitalist institutions are willing to forego lots of short term profits in terms of uh, trades and boycotts and so forth, and that they do very much have their eye on the long term and maintaining a certain kind of international order that's going to be mutually enriching for everyone. Peace and the rule of law are good for business. Yeah, absolutely.
I'd like to jump to a few more questions. Well, we have a few more minutes if you guys are, are ready to take some more questions. Um, and this question here comes from Chris Baker on Facebook. I think a lot of people are thinking this kind of to jump off of his question. He says, um, regarding, you know, when you guys are talking about whether it's a free country or not that's doing the action, that calculation of, of when you should invade or, or take action. Um, what about the U.S. invading Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Libya? I mean, we can add a number of other um, countries to that list. It seems like the calculations are a little different when it's, you know, the Middle East versus Europe. It seems like people react differently. Were those were those invasions justified? Were those actions? Obviously, those are a bunch of different situations. So maybe you feel differently about each of them. Uh, what are your thoughts for those situations? Well, I'm going to throw in Afghanistan, I think is unambiguous because they were harboring a terrorist attack that that directly attacked America. I mean, you know, the, the, even if you said the idea that, oh, we shouldn't be the world's policeman, we should get involved in things that don't affect us. Well, you know, the Taliban having a base in Afghanistan affected us in a very, you know, in a very, in a very big way. I mean, one of the biggest, uh, probably the biggest attack uh, on the actual mainland United States uh, ever. Um, and so, you know, we obviously had to get involved in Afghanistan and, and the Taliban, if you're talking about the calculus of free nations versus unfree nations, the Taliban couldn't claim any, uh, uh, and now that they've taken over again, they still can't claim it, uh, couldn't claim any high ground on that, on that score. Um, uh, and actually, that that's getting worse currently right now because while everybody's paying attention to Russia, the the Taliban are doing a crackdown in their uh, political enemies. Um, and same thing to some extent with with. And now you can talk about the the justification for the Iraq War. You know the 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 idea that they had weapons of mass destruction being uh, turning out to be an invalid one. But on if on the issue of free nation versus dictatorship, there's no question that you know Saddam Hussein had one of the most famously brutal regimes. So his regime per se had no right to be ruling uh, Iraq. And you know I think Iraq even now it doesn't have a great regime, but it's, it's somewhat allied with Iran. But there's the the Iraqi people are way better off with the current regime they have uh, than they were with with Saddam Hussein. But so uh, the idea of America as always being What's wrong with the world, I think, is one of the things that is really being refuted here, you know, that America is not the source of uh, uh, of all aggression and uh, and and uh, and war in the world. And like I said, you know, when we had an American led international order, uh, you actually had far fewer wars and far fewer uh, conflicts and far fewer deaths from wars. Um, than than we than we had before that, and then and more than we might have if if that order is not is not continued. I mean, it's a kind of a weird it's a weird sort of leftist talking point that sometimes gets picked up on the right too, that America is imperialist. Hmm. Stephen, do you have any response to that? No, I think that's well said. Okay. Well, we are kind of nearing the end. Maybe we can do one more question real quick, and then we've got to um, plug some other events and. Uh, unfortunately, come back for a conversation at a later date. Um, real quickly, Andy on Instagram wants to know, shouldn't we be worried about the mass psychosis of people signaling blind support for the Ukraine on social media and the persecution of even Russian students and businesses um, that are guilty of being Russian or only being Russian, as he put it? Well, yes, uh, for sure. To the extent that people are just signing on because everybody else is signing on, that's uh, that's that's a problem. It's, it's not a very big problem in the the scale of the problems we're facing right now, but it is a, a standard problem. You know, a lot of people are social butterflies and me tooers and uh, virtue signalers, uh, even if they're not sure what virtues are, are, are at stake. So I wouldn't worry too much about that. 
Well, also, I was going to say that, and this is a case where the reason why there's a broad consensus in favor of Ukraine is because Ukraine is so clearly in the right, that Russia is so clearly the aggressor in this case. And that mass psychosis thing. So this is a talking point that's come on the right and it's come through Facebook and through social media. And they use that again about COVID, that COVID is mass psychosis, that we all believe there was a pandemic only because we're blind followers who are being having mind control manipulation being done to us. And it's basically a way of whining that other that everybody disagrees with you, right? So anytime somebody disagrees with you, that's mass psychosis. It's it's a psycho, it's a term from psychology that's thrown around with absolutely no consideration for what it actually means as as a psychological term. It's just a, a it's a it's one of these catchphrases used to imply that uh, everybody who disagrees with me is psychologically is psychologically disturbed, and I'm being persecuted. And this is weird sort of conspiracy theory mentality. Um, you know, I think the reason why sometimes the reason why everybody's in broad agreement is because the facts are so clear and the justice of the case is so clear. And it's it's not a conspiracy of mind control to make everybody uh, uh, believe the, uh, to, to ever make everybody disagree with you. Hopefully. <laughs> but on that note, I want to thank you, Stephen and Rob. This is a great conversation. Mm. Um, and I want to thank all of you for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this video and want to see more of our conversations, um, I hope you'll consider making a tax deductible donation at atlassociety.org backslash donate. Also in a half an hour, tune into Stephen's clubhouse, which is taking place. Um, ask me anything about philosophy, correct? Um, yes. If you don't have the app yet, you can secure your invitation at atlassociety.org backslash events. It should be the very first event on the page since it's coming up next. Um, also, Rob has a clubhouse next Tuesday topic uh, TBD, but uh, you can always I, I have a topic, but they got they got shuffled recently. Oh. So I'm not sure which one is next is next week. All right, well, we will definitely have emails and social media posts going out um, with that topic very soon. Also, um, if you enjoyed talking about, you know, the philosophers that Putin is interested in, maybe you'll want to join us for Atlas Intellectuals, where we're talking about anti-capitalist philosophers and thinkers, uh, their ideas and who they've influenced. It's been an amazing course so far, Atlas Intellectuals. Again, you can find it on atlassociety.org backslash events. Uh, and with that, uh, be sure to tune in next week when the founder of Color Us United, Kenny Zhu, will be our guest on the Atlas Society Asks. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>